code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Trauma Code on WBAI. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio today. My co-host, Dr. Raphael, uh, has some clinical obligations and can't be with us, uh, but we have an excellent show today. And of course, before I forget, that music was uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Shining Star. Uh, I was following uh, Questlove's uh, Instagram feed and of course came across uh, another uh artist of importance who passed away that was fred white who was the drummer on that track um so i just wanted to uh put a little shout out to earth wind and fire and all their fans and the late fred white uh just the tip of the hat to uh quest love uh but we have uh in studio today uh dr angelo reyes a uh, thoracic surgeon cardiothoracic surgeon from methodist hospital here in brooklyn uh, and you know the last two episodes that we did uh to, uh, the episode before last, we had Dave Zirin talking about the NFL and his new film, Behind the Shield. And then uh, last week, we had uh, a, uh, a public health specialist on the climate talking about the blizzard in Buffalo. So today, we sort of have a collision of Buffalo and the NFL and, of course, the on-field cardiac arrest of DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills. So I wanted to bring on... Uh, someone to help us understand what was going on there. So before we get any more into it, uh, welcome to the studio, Dr. Reyes. Thank you very much for inviting me today. Uh, and uh, so I, I, let's get uh, right into it. Uh, as as you know, a, a surgeon who specializes in the chest, uh, and as someone who was watching the the game right uh, two weeks ago, what did you see on the field in Cincinnati? Well, first of all, I just kind of settled in to watch the game, and then all of a sudden. Uh the event happened where DeMar Hamlin got tackled, and I literally couldn't believe what I was seeing on the field. It was unbelievable to me that whole night. Right, and and I wasn't watching at the time. I've gone back and looked at some of the film, and of course, uh, Hamlin is, I forget if he's a safety or cornerback, but he was going to make a tackle and kind of squared up and caught the shoulder pads right in his chest. Uh, and he stood up after the play and you know, within one or two steps was back down, just just collapsed on the field. Um, so, you know, as as someone uh, with some, you know, specialization, some experience, what did you think when you were seeing that? What did you see that maybe others missed? Well, you know, at the beginning, I didn't think it was quite that serious because, you know, the tackle itself didn't look particularly violent. It looked pretty and, routine, right? Yeah, it didn't, uh, it didn't really surprise me very much. And, you know, he kind of popped up pretty quickly and then very very soon after that almost immediately collapsed so i i thought it would maybe it was maybe something initially more vasovagal in terms that he might have just fainted or or got the wind knocked out of him uh it took a while before i kind of figured out that something more serious was happening and 
uh, I'll give I, you know when I watched the videos, it was hard for me to tell how quickly were things were happening. But I think in retrospect, credit to the uh, the Bills and the Bengals medical staff on the field because it seems like somebody, especially when you listen to some of the audio that's been released, somebody down there figured out pretty quickly that this was very serious. Absolutely, I mean, kudos have to go to the emergency crew that uh, first came on this on the scene. And, you know, I think that uh, all these NFL teams go through certain checklists uh, and drills in the preseason. But this was a pretty rare event and, in fact, a very rare event. And uh, really, you know, a lot of credit has to go to the emergency team that initially was on the scene. And when I saw it, I don't know if people watching it live had a better angle, but um, I, I couldn't appreciate, but people on the field saw pretty quickly that they were doing... CPR, basically. They were doing uh, chest compressions. Um, I don't know if you saw that right away, um, but what? can you help us understand what happened? Why, is, why would someone making what looked like a routine tackle um, need, need CPR? You know, what is cardiac arrest? What, what happened? Well, you know, uh, I think that what we saw on television was a little bit less, actually, than what the people on the field were seeing just because the TV cameras didn't cover it. But, you know, Kudos to them, again, for uh, giving CPR right away and realizing that there was a cardiac arrest happening. This event was probably what uh, is called commodio cordis, and that's a a fancy word for pretty much a very uh, quick, blunt force trauma to the chest. And it happens usually in, in, in athletes, mostly just because they're in the position where they can have a violent trauma to the chest uh, in their in their work in their profession, right? And so I, I believe this has happened before in you know baseball, where the ball is hit straight at the chest. Hockey with a hockey puck, or football with uh, with a collision straight on in the chest. And right, the 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 rare event happens when it uh, that impact occurs at a certain time during the cardiac cycle, right, when the heart is susceptible? Yeah, and that's what makes it so rare because you have to hit the chest and apply the trauma at a very specific time uh, in the cycle where the heart is beating and relaxing just at a very specific time. And what happens when you get that hit is that the heart itself goes into a kind of uh, uh, disorganized electrical activity that causes the cardiac arrest. Right, so most likely what technically would be... uh, Fibrillation, ventricular fibrillation, right, where the heart is just kind of shaking all around, disorganized uh, cardiac activity. But then the problem is there's no blood flow. There's no oxygenated blood going to the brain or anywhere else. So that's that's the risk that can become life-threatening, right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it becomes very, very important to recognize that this arrhythmia is happening and uh, defibrillate the patient right away. Uh, so... Um, that's that's an important point you make. What does that mean to, we? I guess, defibrillation was that disorganized activity. So what is defibrillation? Defibrillation is uh, when the emergency medical crew uh, at the scene applies uh, electrodes to the chest using a, a, a portable defibrillator device. And what that does is it sends a, a um, an electrical charge across the chest and essentially resets the the regular rhythm of the heart. It's almost like hitting a control alt delete on a computer and having the whole thing reset. 
And so what does that take? What is the equipment that is basically needed to do that in time to prevent, you know, long-term serious disability and death? Well, most uh, teams have these defibrillators, portable defibrillators. They're called AEDs. available to them and actually these are quite available now quite broadly in shopping malls and in yeah. restaurants even at the airport at the airports, swimming pool yeah because you know so many uh, uh, people actually have been saved by the by the presence of these defibrillators you know really quite ubiquitously now and, you know, so whenever a trauma happens like this and you see that there's a cardiac arrest, among trained professionals, there's a protocol that you go through. And, and thank God they went through the protocol and, and did everything right, applied CPR right away and defibrillated this patient right away. Right. So they did the, the chest compressions on the field. And I was trying to find a recording where I could time how long it took them to start, um, but I wasn't able to find that. Uh, but the point is, right away they got to get the uh, blood and oxygen flowing everywhere, and they got to get this equipment in place, and they got to deploy it right before there's uh, permanent damage to the heart, the brain, or other organs. Well, you know, uh, the the portable defibrillator probably goes out with them in the kit that they bring out uh, when they rush out to the field. CPR delivered well is a lifesaver and right. delivered quickly. Right, I. I and, and this is an important point. There was someone, you know, one of these social media influencers saying that they'd never heard of someone getting nine minutes of CPR and uh, and recovering. Um, and I think the point is that that's just wrong. If CPR is done quickly and done effectively and there's a reversible cause, like in this case, um, it can be life-saving and people can recover almost 100% basically, right? I would say... You're absolutely correct on that, Simon. You know, um, CPR delivered well by trained professionals provides adequate blood flow to the brain in such a way that 9 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I've seen even longer than that, and people come back completely neurologically intact. What's important in this situation is they applied the CPR quickly, they realized what was happening, they acted quickly, they, and they defibrillated him very, very fast. Right, and I think it was that um, what I, I'm really impressed by was the recognition of the crisis. I think watching that video, uh, you know, somebody falling down and being on the ground in a football game is, is not terribly uncommon, but I guess they recognize that having someone walking and then collapse and lose consciousness, a young, healthy guy, uh, is not common and may be a sign of a life-threatening um, crisis. Um and in one of our early episodes, people who've been listening to the Trauma Code, we had on representatives from the Jordan McNair Foundation uh, who work to prevent uh, permanent disability and death in young athletes. And uh, what they emphasize is um, the importance of these protocols and, and of having uh, professional uh, medical support for um, and training for everyone who's going to be working with youth ath- athletes. Um, and I think, you know, there was a time where even the NFL would not have had the appropriate um, expertise and equipment in place to deploy within a minute to give effective CPR and and save someone's life like this. Um, but we're at the point really probably everyone who's working with a group of young people uh, and probably all of us who have any position of authority need to know what are the potentially life-threatening crises that the people we're working with may suffer know what the protocols are, have an emergency response plan, 
and have the equipment in place to de- to deploy it once you recognize the crisis. Uh, I don't think I could have said that any better, uh, Simon. I think you're totally on target on that. And then the other thing I think that is becoming very, very mainstream now is the appropriate training for even non-medical professionals, policemen, firemen, um, even people in restaurants, uh, to be able to recognize what's going on and have the defibrillator available. And I, and I think anybody who saw what happened or has seen a crisis and felt helpless, um, you know, it's a bit of a wake-up call. I think any high school dropout, any high school graduate could learn CPR, could uh, be familiar with a, with a defibrillator, take one of the courses, um, and, you know, potentially be in a position to, to check somebody's pulse when they collapse and, and recognize when CPR and 911 is, is the thing to do and, and may be in a position to save somebody's life. What you said there, you know, probably what happened on the field was uh, uh, one of the emergency medical techs uh, that, went, that came out on the field saw that there was no response uh, to DeMar Hamlin and put his finger on uh, the carotid pulse in DeMar Hamlin's neck. When he felt nothing, then he pretty much knew what was going on and and acted appropriately and very quickly. And we were talking about uh, this episode before the show, and you know, you'd mentioned that there have been other such um, sudden cardiac arrest on the field uh, in in uh, certainly in professional sports. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Have others ended up well? Have others ended up not so well? I was preparing for the show and was kind of looking into all this and to see if anything had ever really happened. And I actually found in 1971 there was a game between the Detroit Lions and the Chicago Bears in October of 1971. And, in fact, there was a fatal cardiac arrest of a Detroit Lions player at that time. Uh and I think that the difference between 1971 and 2023 is uh, the, the training was there, the protocols have been well established and, and well in place. And I'm sure the technology is a little bit better with these defibrillators. A- absolutely, 100%. There was no such thing as a portable de- defibrillator in 1971. Uh, and uh, more recently, have there been uh, other such events that you're aware of? I also found... Uh, in an, in an NHL game in 1998, uh, someone who is currently in the NHL Hall of Fame, believe it or not, got struck in the chest by a puck after a slapstick. A slap shot, sorry, not a slapstick. It's not a comedy. Right. And uh, got up like DeMar Hamlin and then immediately collapsed on the ice. But the difference there was that he never went into cardiac arrest. Mm. Uh, he describes that he woke up on the bench and was wondering what happened. So he might have had an arrhythmia of some kind, but maybe not something so disorganized that he ended up getting uh, cardiac arrest. Right, or or any permanent organ uh, damage or injury. So, you know, once uh, they did the CPR, they uh, deployed the defibrillator, we put him in the ambulance, um, you know, what are what are his chances at that point? What makes the difference? And and in the days that followed, what what, what do you think was going on? Well, with without you know trying to uh, diagnose someone who we've never examined, obviously. Well, you know, once they got him to the hospital, 
apparently he arrested again and they, mm. they resuscitated him again over there. So I think that that's been in the news. That little bit has been in the news. But, you know, it was what they did was exactly on target. They kept him sedated. They probably cooled him down a little bit also because that helps to protect your brain because at the time when he first came in, they probably didn't really know what his neurologic status is. And by bringing down the body temperature, you help to preserve and hopefully maintain a stable neurologic status. Yeah. I agree. This is probably why for the first couple of days we didn't have any updates because before they tried to wake him up and evaluate him, there were uh, <clears throat> current recommendations for a cardiac arrest uh, outside the hospital is to do a couple of days of cooling and sedation, like you said, to decrease the amount of energy the brain will use to basically let it rest and, and not risk any area that's in jeopardy but not quite dead yet. Let it recover before it's stressed. And then after that, you know, I think the, the his great advantage is he's a young man, no other previous medical issues, and he's a world-class athlete. So if anyone is going to survive this kind of event, it's that kind of person. Yeah, yeah young brains are really, um, really amazing. It's such a big difference between someone in their teens, someone even, you know, into their 20s compared to someone in their... 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, those brains don't recover the same way. Absolutely. And, you know, compared to someone who's in the 50s, 60s, or 70s, you know, DeMar Hamlin hasn't spent a <clears> lifetime <throat> being diabetic or smoking, hypertensive, uh, you know, all these kinds of things, you know. So I think his dramatic recovery is a testament to the kind of physical shape that he was in. I will say I do have a, without giving anyone's information, I know someone who uh, in, I believe in their 70s, suffered a cardiac arrest, but had the good sense to do it at a swimming pool. Um, and so there was a bunch of people around who were trained in CPR. A defibrillator was handy. They deployed the defibrillator. I think he needed cardiac surgery uh, and recovered with essentially 100% neurologic recovery. So the age is not a prerequisite as long as the correct things are done. And, and there's, you know, certain people have an opportunity to recover um, if that window is taken advantage of. I, I think that that's on target too, Simon, because, you know, if appropriate CPR is given and all the right steps in the protocol to resuscitate patients are followed, you can be 50, 60, 70, even older and still survive with full recovery. And uh, and so I think that's, you know, the, the, the point that we kept getting at. And I think, I forget his name, but the the I think he was the assistant trainer uh, whose name escapes me right now for the bills is the one who recognized that the patient was there that uh, DeMar Hamlin was in cardiac arrest and started CPR because um, you know time is like they say with a stroke time is brain if you know if you respond quickly and get blood perfusing and that that makes all the difference in the world um, and so I think like you said credit to the NFL I think a lot of uh, kind of Old school people have been complaining that the NFL is soft or this kind of thing. But I think a lot of these changes have been motivated by the players themselves. And the point is it's obviously not ever going to be a completely safe sport. Um, but to honor the dignity of the players and to be in a position to, wherever possible, um, you know, take care of them a little bit, prevent injury, prevent uh, death. And I think that that's what made the difference in this case. Again, you're completely on target. Football's a dangerous game. I mean, these guys, it's like being in multiple motor vehicle accidents uh, during a game. These kinds of collisions these the players experience during the, the course of a game. 
The other challenge I think that uh, the people in the field experienced was that these players have helmets and shoulder pads on. So, you know, making it even tougher to deliver appropriate and good CPR. So they must have stripped him awfully fast and, uh, and, and got to doing the CPR in the right way very, very quickly. Right. It's a challenge. I know some of the, uh, the, you know, field side medics will have to have kind of screwdrivers set to take apart the helmet as needed and to cut open the, uh, the, the, the shoulder pads in order to, uh, quickly assess and 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 resuscitate uh, the player. So then you know that's the expertise that that they bring uh, uh, with them. So getting back to Demar Hamlin, you know, uh, obviously I've been I was a little skeptical at first. The things that came through the Buffalo Bills, anything that didn't come from the family or didn't have any um, evidence really. But it looks like what we've seen that you know the breathing tube is out. Um, you know, some of his tweets and other social media seem to be coordinated, but some of them seem to be very spontaneous, like uh, his response to the Bills' um, uh, kick return for a touchdown. I think he immediately responded something that seemed very uh, spontaneous. Some pictures of him in the hospital um, seem to be very uh, make me very optimistic that he, he may have a, a close to full recovery. I don't know if you know any other... Um, uh, I saw some uh, video of him in, in the ICU there, with in, lying in his bed with his family, watching the football game, and it was just so heartening to see. And apparently, he's a very solid young man, and and a real pillar of his community, and not just to his team, but also to his community. Right. I know he's um, raised money for for I think getting toys to kids and and in youth homes and things like this. So, so I think that. Uh, just looking at it from this point of view, I think barring anything un, uh, unforeseen, he's going to have a full recovery. And whether he goes back to the game, that's another issue. But at least he'll have a full recovery and could live. You know, he'll live a long and happy life. Yeah. And well, one of the issues that um, has come up, and this may be outside of your area of expertise, but um, uh, like I mentioned, in having uh, Dave Zirin on, who's a journalist and historian and has studied the NFL extensively. Um, gave me a mind to, to look closely at, you know, l- hopefully Hamlin has a full recovery and, and has a, a rich life and even career ahead of him. But um, for a player who has a spinal cord injury or if he had, an, uh, you know, a noxic brain injury, if he had not gotten uh, blood to his brain and, and needed a lifetime of disability support, um, you know, the the NFL may not be structured to give that to their players. I think it was Garrett Bush on ESPN was putting some of the numbers out there. I think Hamlin's guaranteed salary from his signing bonus was something like 160000 His yearly salary is something like 860000 which even to a couple of surgeons sounds pretty good, except he's not going to have a 20-year career in the NFL. If he's lucky, he'll have a three-year career, and his uh, contract is not guaranteed if he doesn't play ever again, and especially if he's not in a condition to do another job and I don't know what type of own occupation disability insurance he has or the league offers uh, he could find himself with very limited support from the NFL and not in a position to really um, to really continue his career I, I think that that's probably true and I think you kind of see this with all those retired NFL players who have uh, traumatic encephalopathy yeah. and how difficult their lives are and what they go through and I don't think they get that much support from the NFL. And that actually, I think uh, Garrett Bush in that quote that I'm thinking of, he even 
reference that where there was a large settlement recently of money for uh, players who've suffered CTE, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, this kind of uh, chronic traumatic brain injury of these repeated hits um, in contact sports. Um, But even that amount of money that's been dedicated to it hasn't been paid out, and a lot of these players are getting old, and it's very time-sensitive. So we, um, I think, correctly, rightly, are crediting the NFL and crediting the Bills and Bengals organization for how they deployed life-saving equipment and resources in that moment uh, for DeMar Hamlin, and hopefully that makes all the difference in his life. But recognizing that as an institution – they haven't always done that, and they still continue not to step up uh, where they need to for the health and uh, welfare of their players. So I hope this is, is even, you know, best-case scenario, Hamlin has a complete recovery, and it's a moment for us to pay attention to how does uh, this institution, this wealthy institution, or these wealthy institutions, how do they take care of their players, their workers, that put it all out on the line on the field, and, you know, as we saw in this case, may not make it uh, to play another game. I mean, the event with DeMar Hamlin was just so public that I think the NFL couldn't do anything except, you know, do fully right embrace thing. and try to do the right thing. The problem, I think, with the players that have CTE, uh, traumatic encephalopathy, it's not just so much the players themselves, but also their families that are affected and their loved ones that uh, have a lot of pain and anxiety from that. Correct. And, and, and the support that that uh, disabled players will require. You know, it's very costly uh, day after day, month after month, year after year. Um, and in addition to the um, the kind of emotional psychiatric support um, of seeing your loved one kind of uh, lose themselves in front of you. Um, but, um, but, you know, and the other point that I think is important to make here is that uh, football is not just the NFL. There are, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of people playing at every level. Um, And this is a wake-up call to every NCAA team, uh, every high school team, every Pop Warner team, that this could happen to your players. And everybody who's involved in youth football, I think, and other youth sports, baseball, hockey, anything um, where someone could suffer this type of, of cardiac arrest on the field, needs to have an emergency action plan, needs to be trained in CPR, and needs to have a defibrillator available at every single game in practice. Would you agree? Truer words, never said. Um, anything else that um, you think that uh, we should uh, take from from this event uh, as as a medical professional and speaking to a uh, to public community or lay community? Well, you know, the cardiac arrest of Dormar Hamlin was a very um, uh, striking event and quite surprising. The whole issue with tra- traumatic encephalopathy is also quite public. But I think what people should also be aware of is that, you know, all these players in the NFL that are these very big men, as they get older, uh, there's a much greater number of them compared to the normal population that have other problems like uh, joint issues, arthritic issues, hypertensive issues, cardiac issues. And so many of them actually die uh, early from cardiac events, you know, uh, non-traumatic such as this, but, you know, heart attacks and that type of issue. So I think that there hopefully will be in the future greater awareness of other 
medical issues that these players face. And hopefully support uh, from the wealthy institutions that make up the league uh, in the in the taking care of the players, the workers that put it all out on the field. Uh, why don't we take a, a musical break, uh, and then we'll come back in with Dr. Reyes. This is Trauma Code on WBAI. I'm in studio uh, with Dr. Angela Reyes, a cardiothoracic surgeon from Methodist Hospital in Brooklyn, talking about the uh, traumatic cardiac arrest of DeMar Hamlin on the field in Cincinnati. I wish I had a time 
on WBAI. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald. Uh, and that song, of course, uh, was Quavo's recent release. He's part of uh, the Migos group out of Atlanta. Uh, and we talked about a couple episodes ago, uh, Take Off, his nephew and his uh, co-conspirator in that uh, group was shot and killed in Houston. And so that was his uh, song dedicated uh, to Take Off. And I'm not a big Migos fan, but I found that song really touching. Um, and you know, there's been a lot uh, and always is, unfortunately, news about uh, gun violence in the past week or two. I think there was, uh, you know, I grew up in Baltimore. There were seven high school students shot in the last couple of weeks in Baltimore. One of them killed. There was a six-year-old in Virginia that shot uh, uh, presumably his teacher. Uh, I don't know how a six-year-old gets a firearm, but that's the type of thing that happens uh, almost exclusively in this country. Um, so just a reminder uh, that, you know, we talk about the, the type of emergency that any one of us may need to respond to in our daily lives. And unfortunately, in this country, no matter what uh, city, county, state or anything else, one of the most likely crises you're going to have to deal with, unfortunately, may be gun violence. Um, and so that's kind of a reminder in addition to uh, learning CPR and things like this, another one of the... Um, emergency response uh, trainings that is available for lay people is called Stop the Bleed, which in addition to learning how to thump on somebody's chest when their heart stops, um, learning how to respond to hemorrhage and how to stop someone from bleeding or slow it down long, uh, and how to get them, you know, uh, slow it down long enough to get them to the hospital, get them to the trauma center uh, where we can do what we need to do to try to save somebody's life. So hate to be a downer, but that's why we do what we do. That's why we're on the trauma code. Um, and, of course, we're in studio with uh, Dr. Angelo Reyes, uh, a thoracic surgeon, cardiothoracic surgeon, talking about uh, the sudden death uh, of some, sorry, goodness, the cardiac arrest and, luckily, the uh, dramatic recovery of DeMar Hamlin. Um, and we mentioned that at least once previous in the 70s, there was a player with a similar uh, a similar event that had a very different trajectory. So the importance of that emergency response and having an emergency response plan. So definitely thank you for being in studio, Dr. Reyes. Anything else um, about about these topics that, that we should talk about while we have you in studio on the air? Well, I, <clears throat> I think that we should also talk about a sport that, you know, here in America we don't often think about, but the recent World Cup uh, was something that probably more people around the world watched. And these kinds of events have happened and can happen in football slash soccer as well. Absolutely. And uh, I, I don't recall the player's name, but uh, there was a Danish player uh, who had an on-field cardiac arrest and also luckily had a dramatic recovery. I think he had to have an implanted... Um, Christian Erickson. Christian Erickson, right. Had, had to have a implanted defibrillator, which interestingly limited his career choices because I think the rules of the um, uh, Serie A of the, of the Italian 
uh, equivalent of the Premier League did not allow that kind of implantable device for their professional players. Um, so I, I, that goes to show, I guess, that your specialty, uh, uh, this kind of cardiac uh, and thoracic intervention and, and its ability to – someone who had a cardiac arrest on the field is still uh, performing at that level to be competing internationally. I mean, uh, an automatic implantable cardiac defibrillator saves lives. And uh, just as an aside, I, I, I trained with one of the people that developed that uh, uh the actual device. Excellent. Well, I, I won't. I won't ask how old that is to age you at all. But um, in any case, um, and and of course the point is, and I think uh, Reggie in studio brought this up, our, our board engineer, but uh, and even found uh, some literature saying that uh, many many of the people who suffer on field cardiac arrest in soccer don't have good outcomes, and I think it all comes down to uh, having the expertise and and the action plan in place to respond to such events. It should be a good wake up call to all sports leagues absolutely um so uh while i have you in studio dr reyes i always like to um to ask our guests uh for any kind of cultural recommendation what are you reading you know what are you listening to uh what would you like to share with our audience that they may not otherwise be aware of well you know i've been actually reading the started to read in the uh, january 6th report and I think given the events, no matter what your political persuasion, it's something that pretty much every American should read. Absolutely. And I, uh, I, I was, every time I was home doing housework, I would listen to the, uh, to the kind of the presentations of the um, January 6th committee. And I think on this station, they probably preempted everything else to air them live, um, which kind of felt culturally like maybe the moment uh, during uh, Watergate where um, almost doesn't happen anymore where everyone's eyes and ears are, are on uh, kind of a political development on a, just a couple of channels. Um, but definitely the the importance of that. And uh, as we just saw this last week um, in Brazil, the, the storming of the uh, Congress of the presidential office and the Supreme Court in Brazil against uh, the Lula government, um, that unfortunately this is part of, um, you know, uh, of a worldwide movement to, to take power in, in a way that has no respect for, for kind of democratic and, and, uh, and a tolerant society. But what else, what, what have you taken anything from, uh, from that report? Well, you know, uh, I watched uh, quite a bit of the January 6 hearings that were televised and I'm actually old enough to remember watching the Watergate hearings, uh, that one summer, I think. Uh, and it struck me that, there were so many similarities and in fact but actually what really really struck me was the courage it took for a lot of those witnesses to come forward and be honest uh, to the committee and Cassidy Hutchinson in particular reminded me very much of John Dean wow um it's funny i i kind of know of those names of of that Watergate report from listening to uh what was his name the revolution will not be televised help me out reggie um Talking about Gil Scott Heron. Yeah, Gil Scott Heron had okay. some had some uh, some references in his songs that H T O H two O blues. Yeah, right. That's that's one of them. Exactly. Uh, that led me to to look up and do some reading. So that's the only way I know about those names. And I don't know how much younger I am than you, but uh, uh, anyway, thank you so, uh, for for sharing that. And I think we have uh, on the line uh, uh, my co-host uh, Dr. Cassandra Raphael, who can't be in studio today. 
Um, and I wanted to loop her in because uh, one of the, the things that I, I value about this show and about our relationship, uh, who's, she's also my wife. I don't know if I've told people that. Um, <laughs> but uh, is that understanding trauma both, you know, to the body and kind of to the psyche. And I think it's probably worth talking about what is the cost to the people who witness, especially who aren't medical professionals, who aren't used to and maybe not be aware of the risk or, or at least haven't internalized the risk. What is the cost to people who witness uh, such, you know, on-field cardiac arrest? Dr. Raphael, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? We got you loud and clear. Thanks for joining us. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thanks for looping me in, and thank you uh, to Dr. Reyes for his very insightful comments and explanation of most recordus. And um, it's been it's been very nice to listen to you all have this conversation, um, a, a multifaceted conversation when it comes to the NFL sports in general, the accessibility of uh, AEDs and life-saving equipment in a hurry for these, you know, kind of difficult contact sports. Uh, I do have some thoughts. Thank you for, for bringing that up. There are some, there, there have been much research done uh, concerning the effect of watching a resuscitation. Um, and a lot of this research actually takes place for folks who are like in an ED uh, with a relative who needs to be resuscitated. And oftentimes, you know, the family will be escorted out or escorted to the side, but sometimes they insist on staying because they want to be there for, for everything and whatever might happen, they want to kind of be, be, be available for. And um, in these situations, regardless of the turnout, right, regardless of the turnout, it's very uh, common for the observers to experience a sense of anxiety because in the end, you, you really don't know what's going to happen. And in fact, the people who are resuscitating don't know what's going to happen necessarily. They're doing their best. They're doing everything by the protocol. Somebody's kind of running or calling the code. Um, but we can't always say, oh, this is how it's going to be, uh, so long as we kind of follow the, say, the playbook, um, the healthcare playbook. Um, so what that might look like is in the longer term, you can have some avoidance behaviors, like there are places you just won't go, either where the, the event, where the cardiac arrest took place, or, you know, back to that hospital, you just don't feel good about being there. And, and that makes a lot of sense. But then also, you might have intrusive thoughts, like flashbacks of what you saw in that resuscitation. Uh, you might experience some kind of hypervigilance, feeling easily startled. And across age and gender and how close you are to the person that's being resuscitated, the, the effects don't always vary that much. But you can imagine for, for a family member and, you know, on an entire football team, we're talking about a teammate uh, and people that you're kind of touring the whole country with and spending a lot of time with, obviously, some people have become more than just co-workers to DeMar. Um, they are friends, and, and in some ways, kind of become your family on the road, I would imagine. Uh, it can be very difficult for the folks who are his teammates, and even for the folks who are watching live, and, and I will say, watching on Monday I, Night Football. I think the biggest difference between the kind of the spectators and us as medical professionals is a sense mm -hmm. of helplessness. I mean, there are times where it feels helpless, even though we do everything we can. Um, but someone who doesn't have the training or expertise or the equipment, um, that just, just must feel like an out-of-control situation. Um, exactly, and that's the anxiety. That's the anxious component of the thing, It's the not knowing. And I will say, uh, I, don't, not, I, yeah. I, I don't know, Dr. Reyes, in your experience, but I know where I trained um, at Hopkins, there were times where we would invite family to be present as long as we could do so without having them in the way. Invite them to be present for our CPR and our resuscitations. Have you ever uh, experienced that? 
uh, actually in general know. Um, right. Usually we think we don't want them to see it. We don't want yeah. them in the way. But there was um, a movement in that hospital, and I, I, I don't recall the data, um, that letting – and maybe this was more so in the ICU where we had chronically ill people where um, I guess to, to – you know, if family wanted to be present, let them be present, let them see that we've done everything possible um, – and uh, you know, be present in 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 what were often the the person's last moments. You know, Doctor Raphael, I think you made a great point because you know, in general, the public, uh, I mean, as medical professionals for, with these kinds of events, you almost get trained to compartmentalize your emotions and kind of separate them from what's actually going on. So, uh, you know, going through these protocols is a way of doing that, and I think the public isn't. Inco- Maybe, you know, they just don't have this because they haven't gone through these kinds of experiences that we all have gone through. And um, and uh, um, before I, I give it back to you, I, I keep forgetting, and so I'm glad you reminded me, uh, Cassandra, that um, I think one, you know, we talked about what's the difference between the NFL of today and of the past and what does the NFL do well and what are they still kind of cruel at. I mean, I think one thing that we saw in this game that we, you know, players who have witnessed, you know, their teammates be paralyzed or have other emergencies on the field is that we saw the teams uh, basically say we're not going to you know we're not going to play this game, uh, right? You know, there's no there's no winners on the field. Uh, there's no winners when when someone has a cardiac arrest on the field. I mean, and I wonder if that gave you know in addition to Hamlin having so far a dramatic and excellent recovery, um, if that gave them a, a a little sense of their own power back. Uh, you know, take away that helplessness uh, to to say like we can't just blow the whistle and go back to the next down. Um, I don't know if you have a thought about that. Right. I think, um, you know, I I have very good friends who have played at least semi-professional football. And despite my vocal (laughs) uh, opinions on how safe that sport is, especially also in terms of brain health, when you talk about like CTE and things, um, my friends still like me and they still hang out with me, but I've I've been very vocal about this. So I... um, I, I want to agree with you that, you know, I would like to hope that what we're seeing is a little bit of a more humanitarian approach of the NFL that, you know, quote, and I, I've read that at least one commentator made the remark that this close to, you know, the Super Bowl, that they should be kind of stopping games because somebody is hurt. And, and I mean, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. And it seemed that the feedback that I was seeing in response to that thought or that opinion was also that they couldn't wrap their mind around it. So I think that there's maybe a, a more general humanitarian approach to to the players in that in, anyway in this particular instance. And, and and it's been you know beautiful to see. And yeah. it resonated with me. I mentioned earlier in the show that uh, I've taken a little bit of a role with uh, a foundation, the Jordan McNair Foundation, working to uh, end death and disability uh, from you know in, in youth sports. Um, and the reason that I got involved with that was that there was an basically an on-field death in a high school football game uh you know the mm-hmm. in Baltimore uh about a year ago um and you know that 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 player survived to the hospital but didn't survive a week or two uh and that the game went on as far, you know as far as i know and and um i think maybe this is uh, a wake up call and maybe you know you talked about the 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 effects the psychiatric psychological effects um and and I think that you know this may be a wake up call. Then in any sport where someone has a life threatening injury on the field, I think that we all have to recognize that there's going to be no winners that day. And and maybe that recognizing that and letting the players be present with their their teammate and their family and their teammates uh, in that moment 
um, right. may be beneficial. I think that you, uh, I'm not sure that you've mentioned this already, but it seems that when DeMar Hamlet opened his eyes, the first thing he wanted to know was who had won the game. Right. And his providers said that he won the game, that he won the game of life. Yeah, who won? Um, that's the right, I, I think that's the right answer. He did win. Um, it, it, maybe, maybe I'm walking that back a little bit. He won in some ways, but I guess the long-term effects of what he went through are a little bit, you know, little, remain to be seen. What is a little bit muddy? Exactly. They remain. They remain to be seen. They remain to be seen. And you also did mention the financial repercussions that uh, a player at age 24, not vested in the NFL, which would require three or four years of you know of, of playing or participation before they get um, a pension, right? Right before they get a pension. That's that's a significant for a 24 year old. You know, we're not we're not talking about we're talking about what, what might be a long life and also a long life with disability. Right. So. So any other thoughts, anyone who's who witnesses uh, kind of a traumatic, dramatic, um, you know, not even necessarily on the field, but um, how can people kind of um, be present with uh, with that moment and with their thoughts in such a way that it's, you know, be therapeutic rather than uh, traumatic and scarring? Right. Um it doesn't always end like this, right? If I'm if I'm being totally honest, it doesn't always end like this. Demar Demar Hamlin's story so far sounds kind of like a success, right? He got hurt, but he's doing better, and this is reassuring for many. Um, but to be clear, what I was describing earlier about you know avoidance symptoms or having recurring thoughts about what you might have seen when you try and focus on other things, or feeling easily startled or hypervigilant, those are symptoms that we usually associate with PTSD. Okay, that's what, you know, after a month of feeling this way, that that's, you know, what we would call it. So that's post-traumatic stress disorder. It's it's hard to predict, you know, what you're going to see when you're going to see it. You know, it would be excellent if we could protect ourselves that way all the time. Um, but if you know kind of what you what you can tolerate, what you what you can take, what you can't take. And if you know that the resuscitation would be too much for one to watch, then, you know, you can shut it off at that time. You know, you might want to read the success stories, but you may not want to read the details of what he went through. Um, if at a different time you feel more prepared, if you feel supported, if you have you know, people who are very passionate about the sport and you can kind of lean in with them and they can make you feel like this is a good thing, you know, that we're seeing this man's recovery, this young person's recovery. Um, you can kind of focus on that aspect of, of the narrative. Uh, but for sure, it's a little bit, it's, it will always be difficult at every juncture to know kind of like what you can, what you can and cannot take. It's a little bit of a toss up to say how we can prepare, you know, for these kinds of things when you can't really predict them. Wow. And so, uh, you know, for everyone out there in radio land, you've been listening to trauma code on WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, uh, in studio with our guest, Dr. Angela Reyes, a cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, from a Methodist hospital in Brooklyn. And we have on the line my co-host. Dr. Cassandra Raphael, happy to be here on a Monday. Anything else, uh, Dr. Raphael, before we wrap it up that uh, you want to uh, share with us? Uh, I don't want to make the thing small. But honestly, I'm kind of glad that the NFL knew to stop the game when they stopped the game. I'm kind of glad that the Buffalo Bills are supporting uh, DeMar Hamlin all wearing his jersey number and putting out the We Love DeMar signs. Uh, on their on their more recent game over the weekend, and I am looking forward to seeing at least Rihanna's 
halftime Super Bowl show. <laughs> and I might not have been able to watch that if they didn't make the right decisions in my opinion. So. Uh, Dr. Ray, so while, while you're on the air uh, in New York City, anything else you want to say to our audience? Stop smoking, anything else? <laughs> uh, you know, stop smoking, that's a definite. But uh, I also just wanted to add to all those people that um, may have whatever kind of um, – Feelings of PTSD from whatever event, you know, uh, there's so much support that's available now that uh, please don't hesitate and don't feel it. It's a, it's a, it's your burden to carry yeah. alone. Yeah, actually, there's help out right. there. And uh, the fact that I'm seeing, I'm sorry, I just want to add to what Dr. Race is saying is absolutely true. And the fact that this is a conversation that not only we are having, but I've, I've seen kind of pop up a lot in the immediate aftermath of of DeMar Hamlin's injury is, you know, I've seen psychiatrists, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers online all saying like, look, what happened is traumatic. If you feel a way about it, it's appropriate. Um, and lean into your, your support network, whatever that is to kind of uh, get through this, you know? So definitely I, I appreciate kind of the, a little bit of the frame shift, the frame shift in uh, mental health, like how society is viewing it right now. And, um, it's it's a positive change, and uh, you know to wrap up the show, uh, we're gonna have a song on that is gonna be, I guess, my recommendation. Uh, the song is I think R E D, by a group, uh, Ottawa First Nations group. At the time they went by a tribe called Red, uh, sort of a, a playoff of a tribe called Quest. I think now they go by uh, the Halusi Nation, uh, and it's gonna feature uh, Brooklyn's own. Uh, Most Def, who now goes by Yasin Bey, originally Dante Terrell Smith, who grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, and, you know, we, we always talk about our, our cultural experiences in New York on the show. And I remember it must have been 2017, I think. Uh, I had just finished my residency. It was a month uh, before my fellowship started. Uh, they played uh, a tribe called Red or Hallucination, played in Central Park. Uh, and I was broke because I had no income that month. I was about to move back in with my parents uh, for fellowship. Uh, and though I didn't have much at that moment listening to this group uh, in Central Park and this uh, crew of like motor of, of uh, you know, people that must have come from Ontario, uh, Ottawa and elsewhere with their motorcycle jackets. Uh, yeah, Jibway yeah, uh, group. Uh, it just felt like I didn't have much, but I had it pretty good. So uh, this song is R.E.D. by The Hallucination with Yasin Bey. Bismillah. Hey! Hey! and living by the G-code. What the f*** fleek though? Don't ask them, what do he know? What I forgot is better than whatever they remember. Never mind, I'm off it. It's quiet for him. Time to put the temper tantrums to the quiet corner Hush, that's enough, said the ruler No suckers allowed to break bread or asunder The daylight, lightning and the thunder Sun, moon, stars and the hunger Abundance in bundles, blessings in troubles Towers and tunnels, views and valleys Waves and peaks, streets you from sun Planet Earth, and ain't scared of no Mars attack What type of bars is that? Stay off my chat. I'm up, they call me riot garments. Top five, dying on and on them. Super fly, slicker, top rope. Eagle diving on them. You why you lying, homie? You won't play with my emotions, Smokey. Big Chief, heart rate, big, big, B-E-Y-I. 
seen straight jacket come clean big said it was a dream now it's a living thing with you and living kings i mean it i mean Solid with it. True and living. 